I'm Adam Clark. On this month's Thereby, my guest is... My name is Seamus Heffernan, the author of Napalm Hearts. Uh, you can uh, find everything about the book, including where to buy it, and all my social media uh, at my website. That's SeamusHeffernan.com, S-E-A-M-U-S-H-E-F-F-E-R-N-A-N.com. Author Seamus Heffernan, from what you told me, Napalm Hearts arose not from a desire to write the great Canadian novel, but as a way of taking your mind off a broken marriage. <laughs> uh, yeah, usually people start with the easier questions. <laughs> Sorry, I've been watching a lot of Larry King lately. He's so direct. You heard at the top of the show, this month on And Thereby Hangs a Tale, my guest is Seamus Heffernan, author of Napalm Hearts. He's going to tell us about the role that writing his novel played in helping him recuperate after his divorce. Oh, and this isn't one of those podcasts where a divorce guy blames his wife for everything because A, Seamus is happy with his new life and current significant other, and B, as I said at the top of the show, my guest is Seamus Heffernan, not Dave Foley. hey Divorce jokes. All right, enough of this. Let's get back to Seamus. When I first started writing this a few years ago, it was because I always wanted to write a uh, you know a detective novel, and um, and as it got going, I realized that a lot of the uh, the themes that were coming up in it, you know, the protagonist is very lonely. He's uh, you know. He's separated from his own wife. He has a tough relationship with his uh, with his uh, younger daughter. Uh, you know, he's you know, he's he's hurt, and I realized that that kind of uh, you know his depression and uh, and his isolation and I guess that urban ennui uh, that was stemming completely from pretty much my last uh, year or so in London. Ah, <laughs> yes, beautiful London, Ontario. <laughs> While London, Ontario is beautiful, uh, no, I was in uh, <laughs> London, England. Uh, I uh, shout out to all my uh, Holloway friends, uh, North London, Arsenal FC supporting, you know, Guinness drinking guy. You were born and raised in Newfoundland, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What brought you to London, England? Uh, the uh, my now ex-wife. I moved away from Newfoundland when I was 22 with um, with the young lady in question. Uh, we lived in uh, Ottawa, Ontario, for about uh, eight years. Uh, we got married. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was good. It uh, you know, there's certainly a lot uh, more good times and bad times. But like a lot of people, uh, you know, you change, you grow, and uh, you know, things just didn't work out. And in in reflection. Um, you know, I think that it's when the rot starts to set in and neither person not only knows what to do about it, but can't seem to get the momentum to turn around. Uh, that's tough. That's tough to go through. It's a clear sign that it's possible the relationships run its course, but it's certainly difficult to uh, uh, to come face to face with. So we split, um, you know, 
you have someone in your, who's in your life for a long time, in my case, 13 years, uh, you know, you're kind of cast adrift there for a, a little bit, got to find your way back. I was very fortunate. I got great friends in the UK, uh, many who I'm still, uh, you know, in touch with. But, uh, you know, as I think I said to somebody earlier today, uh, there's there's no worse feeling than uh, feeling uh, alone in a city with seven and a half, seven and a half million people running around you. Yeah, I remember really clearly when I was, um, because I hadn't even lived on, I lived on my own like over 10 years because we'd just always been together. Like I remember one Sunday going to the, uh, I went to the grocery store um, and uh, just filling up my cart and I was looking around, there's all these people and they all, you know, there's uh, boyfriends and girlfriends, husbands and wives, kids with their uh, their parents. And I was just, you know, picking through the expired uh, sandwiches to see what I was going to have for uh, for dinner that night. I was thinking I could actually disappear here and nothing would happen. When did you become sad sandwich, Seamus? Uh, the year after. I lived in London for five years and then I split. Uh, we split uh, about four years into our stay. I spent another year there. You know, I tried to shake things up, got a new job, which I hated. <laughs> Some good people, though, but it wasn't a good fit. And, uh, you know, I just wasn't getting better. You know, I wasn't getting, wasn't progressing. And I had this kind of, I don't know, St. Paul on his way to Damascus moment. I woke up <laughs> on a Sunday morning um, on the mattress on my floor. I'd actually moved into a new flat with a buddy of mine. Great place. The landlord had delivered a brand new bed. And this is how little I cared about myself at the time. I was like, yeah, I'm not even bothering to put that together. I'm just going to sleep on the, the mattress. Here. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, everything, the box spring and everything is just over the corridor, right? It's just like, uh, well, you know, those box springs, bedposts, those are for people you know have faith in themselves. Did your roommate have any questions or did he have a laissez-faire attitude about you? Seamus does his own thing. Yeah, he pretty much stayed out of the way. But, I mean, he knew. Like, he knew what was going on. Uh, you know, all my friends did. And that's what happened was I woke up that uh, that Sunday. Uh, you know, I've been out too late the night before and probably had too much. And the sun was splitting rocks. I remember that. And I'd forgotten to close the curtain. So it was just slashing down inside uh <laughs> <laughs> like a strobe and i woke up and i said i've got to make some changes here real fast and i jumped up and i thought i knew where my roommate was because there was a pub we used to hang out with around the corner and it was sunday so i thought maybe he would have gone out for the the sunday roast and he wasn't there but there was another buddy of mine there and i said have you seen ed and he said no and he said what's going on man like you look a little frazzled i said i think I'm, i i gotta go back to canada and he just reached out and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said well i think we were expecting it man like uh, a lot of people here care about you, and we uh, we think that uh, you know we think that might be a good move for you. So he didn't touch your shoulder and say, "Take me with you." <laughs> no, no. A lot of my friends always ask me, "Why did you come here? Why did you leave Canada to come here?" But you know, I did love it. Uh, you know, I'm still very fond of it. I'd love to uh, to go back again. Maybe not to live, but uh, yeah, I know it's a huge part of my life, and I love the city. The last part, notwithstanding. How long were you married? Uh, I was married about five years, and we were together 13. We were uh, uh, painfully earnest university sweethearts. You mentioned there was an irreversible period where the rot set in in your marriage. How do you come to recognize that, and how long did it last? Uh, it was a couple. Of, it was definitely a few months uh, for us where I knew that uh, something was really bad. And, you know, I reached out to her, uh, you know, I said, look, something's not right here and you're shutting down and I know things aren't great, but we got to try to, 
figure something out here. Um, you know, but the uh, the long and the short of it was, uh, I think that uh, she was unhappy and uh, I was unhappy. I was, uh, you know, maybe maybe being hopelessly old fashioned and twelve years of Catholic school, I'd me to be the one to think, no, we should stay married. That's what people do. Whereas uh, <laughs> uh, her interpretation of uh, of the arrangement was different. So. Prior to deciding to move back to Canada, was it frequently a case of tying one on, or were you more alienated than that and more likely to do nothing? Like, how would you occupy yourself after such a big and, and frankly, devastating change? Oh, I went out all the time. You know, uh, I went to the pub, went out to eat. I always tried to surround myself with people. Um, you know, I made some stupid choices too. Like, you will always in those situations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you're uh, when you're hurting and and you're uh, you're depressed and you're not taking care of yourself, you know. Because I remember like one point, yeah. Um, I, I think I had like McDonald's five days in a row, and I'm thinking as I'm walking <laughs> down the street with a double cheeseburger, and I'm thinking, yeah, that's not grown up behavior. And then the other half of my brain is going, shut up, <laughs> nobody cares about you. <laughs> Get that down your neck and shut up. <laughs> Exactly. It's normal to have diarrhea at nine in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> when your fast food choices are a reflection of uh, what's quickly becoming a really deeply ingrained self-loathing, that's probably a key sign that you should start making some better choices, gastrointestinal or otherwise. Because I had two places after it was we officially split. I had a, a studio flat on Seven Sisters Road, uh, you know, uh, typically matchbook sized, and I think only something like 200 pounds a week, you know, that, that reasonable uh, London real estate market. And then I lived with uh, my buddy Ed and we, uh, we were split in a two bedroom place. Uh, when I was living by myself in the, uh, the studio, a uh, lot of Sunday spent reading, you know, and, and that was also another sign that I knew that something wasn't right because, you know, I'm reading my best friend Leonard's by, uh, uh, oh God, what's his name? Fry, the guy who wrote a million little pieces. And oh. yeah, and I hadn't even read a million little pieces, but I read my um, my uh, my friend Leonard, and I'm like bawling at the end of it, <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, this is you know a powerful story, and this is an effective ending, but this may not be a proportionate response. They they're obviously uh, this is serving as some sort of emotional outlet, you know. And so you know, I tried to meet uh, other women. Uh, you know, I always surrounded myself with the guys, so there was always you know pints and laughs. And I'd bring a book to the pub, but I didn't want to talk to anybody. Just just had to be around people, you know. And even which was weird because I wasn't really connecting with people. But like if I was by myself, uh, you know, I'd be sweating spinal fluid just staring at the ceiling. Well, I was uh, I was an idiot. Uh, <laughs> why should why should any part of the story be any different than the other parts? Um, what happened was shortly after I uh, I split, uh, I had a terrible crush on this uh, on this woman. We ended up seeing each other briefly. Uh, she was a journalist in Scotland, and uh, she, so she was in Glasgow, and I was in London. But of course, it's very easy when you live in the UK to get around. It's very cheap to travel mm-hmm. by air, and I was you know I was quite smitten with her, and uh, unfortunately. Uh, she didn't. Uh, she didn't quite feel uh, the same way. So I could kind of feel. I, I was definitely picking up on the vibe that uh, you know she wasn't really uh, into it uh, in the last uh, week or so. And then she called me. It was a Sunday, mm-hmm. and I was in that shabby little studio flat on Seven Sisters Road. Uh, you'd be proud of me, though. The bed was mounted. Now it wasn't simply 
spot a pod on the floor. Uh, and she said, I'm not coming down. And she started to uh, explain herself. And I just stopped her. I said, no, you know what? I get it. It's just not going to work out. You're a really great person. I really enjoyed getting to know you and take care of yourself. And she was like, oh, wow. Um, okay. She said, you're a really, you're a really nice guy. And I, I, I hope you're okay. You're a good person. I said, thanks. And I hung up and then I curled up into the tightest fetal ball and began to weep bitterly. Not until I checked to make sure that the phone was closed. It was an old flip phone. So I had this moment of terror where I hadn't hung up and she could now hear that. But no, fortunately... Fortunately, it was closed and something resembling my self-respect was left intact, even as I dampened, dampened the duvet with my tears. So that kind of set in motion the thing where uh, women started to have to come chasing me because I'm like, nah, nah. <laughs> Do they follow a trail of tears to find you? You know, there, there, were, a couple of, uh, there were a couple of women who were who were very nice enough to take an interest in me. But, you know, it was tough because there's absolutely no way I was prepared to kind of commit or get uh, or get seriously involved. I mean, it was just scorched earth for me. And I was always really upfront with uh, with people about that. Um, you know, and sometimes, though, you'd meet somebody and you'd earn to them a little bit more uh, than they earn to you, and it's not going to work. And then, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a, a woman who I was dating before I came back, and she was lovely, but... Um, it's, I, I wanted to go back to Canada. There's just no way it was going to work. And also, I think that it was one of those things. You know, sometimes you just feel that maybe the other person's feeling a little bit more. And, uh, you know, I think that, yeah, she told me that uh, she was a little hurt when I came back to Canada. But at the same and I get that. I totally get that. Um, but, you know, I had to get out. And I, had, you know, I, I told people the truth about that. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't running away from her. I was running away. <laughs> from this environment to try to get better yes and of course no one runs away to canada without breaking a few hearts oh yeah 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 i want to hasten to add here that uh you know not exactly james bond here buddy like <laughs> pretty low-key stuff <laughs> now just to get a sense lady of the killer isn't on the resume let's just make that clear okay i i'll make a note but just to, for the chronology, when did you arrive back in Canada? November. Uh, it was November 2008. And I remember it because when I was, I got a friend of mine dropped me off at Heathrow that morning. And I picked up a copy of the Times. And it was the uh, the day after the U.S. election and Barack Obama was on the uh, the cover. So that's the day I flew out of Heathrow. Okay. I think I still got that actually somewhere. Okay. So, I mean when you arrive in Canada, it's so long since you've been there. I'm sure there's people that you reconnected with. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, Newfoundlanders, uh, a lot of them will never leave. Man. Like, so when I got back, there was, uh, you know, there was a lot of guys who I was buddies with back in, uh, you know, uni and high school who were still there. And, you know, so I got back into my old D and D group. I remember the, not a lady killer thing. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I think this is establishing it. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, started. Uh, I wanted to get involved with the community, so the following summer, I started. Uh, I started coaching soccer, which I ended up doing for about six years or so, which I really enjoyed because I love the game and I used to be a teacher. Uh, the first few months back were a little crazy because I had I had lost a lot of weight, uh, and my my father told me afterwards that uh, when we got home, because my parents picked me up at the airport, that when my mom got alone in the room, she actually started to cry because she thought that I just looked, you know, ghostly. 
<laughs> so so she uh, of course i didn't have a job so i literally had nothing else to do for a couple of months except uh watch uh like binge watch Remember they used to show uh, Law and Order on A and E, but I think they used to show like a bunch of different episodes, like back to back or something like that. Yeah. Yes, so I spend the uh, spend my days doing that and eating. <laughs> because <laughs> I started to waste away, and then it went too far the other way. Then I was almost like two hundred pounds. I was okay, time to slow this down. And then finally, <laughs> you know, finally by about I don't know eight months later, back to uh, the, the 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 still thankfully relatively trim figure that no one can see before them now. You know, say what you want about Dick Wolf. Those are tight episodes, man. Like, it is hard to turn out a solid procedural week by week at that kind of quality. But anyways, I digress. Sorry, you were saying. (laughs) Yes. I mean, praise for Dick Wolf aside. You know, at what point do you start to feel together when you're back home in Newfoundland? And, like, how long, like, how long does it take? And is it? sort of segmented or was it more of an event or a sudden change of mind that made you feel like oh i can be a person again i'm not broken Seamus. yeah i i wish i could tell you there was a flash moment but it's all kind of like little steps man um you know i knew that uh so i went to my doctor and uh, i was on antidepressants for a little while i tried to get a little bit more uh, exercise um which for me is like, you know, <laughs> hiding the remote control and then running around trying to find a uh, good cardiovascular workout that, um, and, um, you know, connecting with family and getting a job, uh, you know, all those things that start to add up, uh, on the grown up list. You know, uh, I met a young woman, uh, when I came back and we were together for almost three years and, uh, she helped me out a lot, uh, but I still wasn't better. You know, like there was things that, I think it was tough for her because, uh, you know, I think the shadow of the end of my marriage had kind of was hanging heavy over me. Mm -hmm. Um, and unfortunately it didn't, it didn't work out, but, uh, you know, she, uh, she was great. She was great. And it was really good when it was really good. So, uh, and that's another thing, you know, can, cause it took me a long time. Um, it took me a long time to be able to kind of, uh, allow myself to feel close, you know, and, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot to put on another person. So you just try to be as honest as you can and, and, and tell them that you're, you know, you're, you're getting better, but it's, it's, it's more of a long-term process. Like, I still remember like after my, uh, after my marriage ended, like being on a date with, uh, with a woman and she, uh, she just, just reached out and like, she, you know, touched the back of my head very affectionately. And I kind of twitched because nobody had touched me like nicely in a really long time. <laughs> so like the bare, ba- the, the, the barest expression of, uh, of kindness. <laughs> yeah. like, she didn't even know my hand. She just kind of gave my neck a little squeeze. Like, Oh, you're all right. <laughs> I love that your reaction to a token of affection is ah, gross. At that point, it, yeah, because it, it, it wasn't gross. I guess I was just surprised <laughs> because, again, you know, because I hadn't had that for so long. Because the end, uh, you know, when a marriage ends, you know, uh, it's like palliative care, man. Nobody goes fast. Like sometimes it just drags on and on, and you—that's the rot you talk about. And so, yeah, you see a lot of people who stay married who are still happily in that rut. I can't say that. Uh, you know, what? it was tough, but I can't say that I wish it had gone any other way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, life is great now. Um, 
and uh, I've been very blessed in a lot of things that have uh, that have happened. Uh, there's been some setbacks, but uh, I'm very uh, I'm very fortunate to be uh, where I am now. And who knows what would have happened if I had stayed in London or stayed in that marriage? So, well, let's go through some of that in terms of the changes that happened and decided to like you you essentially found a purpose one in writing the novel but in other things too whether it was coaching or finding love again no matter how temporary that would be like the very fact that you can date after a a marriage ends i mean that's quite a devastating thing to happen so not getting over it so to speak but moving past it and making an effort to move past it you know takes quite a lot of resilience um yeah i i see where you're coming from but you know you only got two choices either get get going or just shut off completely from everyone forever and that's just and so so that might be a tempting option and certainly the easier option but you know was it wasn't morgan freeman said in uh seven you know get busy living or get busy dying i'll take (laughs) i'll take the former i think Towards the end of his time in Newfoundland and moving to Abbotsford, B.C., where he currently resides, Seamus starts to get a little more serious about Napalm Hearts, which the writing of certainly helped him deal with the end of his marriage and the start of a new life. When I came out here, I got a lot more serious about it and I just started, uh, you know, I just started carving out the time for it, you know, and, you know, even if it's just a few pages a week, man, it starts to add up fast. And so then last, uh, about two years ago, I had a, a finished draft and I started asking people to look at it. And then last year I sent it to a professional editor um, who, you know, that was like for typos and consistency and were there any plot problems or anything like that. And um, because I wanted to start shopping around the publishers. And so he wrote, you know, he did a good, good job. A guy named uh, Rob Bignall uh, does a lot of crime fiction editing and very reasonable rights too. Um, and he came back and said, this is really good. He said, someone's going to get this. And if they don't, you should publish it yourself. I'm like, okay, Rob, whatever, man. <laughs> You're just being a nice guy. I get it. Um, and so then, you know, if you want to get published, you either got to find an agent. Assuming you don't self-publish. Uh, you got to find an agent who's going to knock on doors for you and connect you with people. Um and uh, that gives you a chance of getting in at some of the bigger houses. Hell, even some of the smaller houses don't take unsolicited manuscripts now unless you got an agent. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to read you unless an agent vouches for you. Or you can find uh, independent houses. Um, you know, preferably one that might specialize in your genre, uh, who are smaller operations but want to work with new and emerging writers, and they want to uh, they want to help you get your book in print, and they want to see if they uh, you know if they, <laughs> if the two of you can make a few bucks. And that's what happened to me. I sent it off to a bunch of independents uh, and uh, these uh, lovely people, uh, Steph and Lawrence Patterson at a publishing house called Crooked Cat in France. They're English. They're veterans of the publishing scene. They set up their own shop. They got in touch and they said, hey, we really like this. We think we'd like to work with you. And uh, after I checked and cross-referenced the list of publishers with the list of friends, I realized that this wasn't a prank being played on me. So It was how many years to complete the book? Oh, about seven, but really, uh, two or three. The last the last three years was when it was really heavy duty work. Like, how much time was spent revising and creating drafts? Oh God, man, ninety percent of writing is rewriting. It's hell. It's absolute hell. But you got to do it. You got to do it because the best part when you're writing is when it's just flying, man. 
you know, and, and it's just hitting the page, bam, 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 bam. And you, you look up and you've been hunched over your keyboard for seven hours and the girls at Starbucks are looking at you weird because they want to go home and it's closing time. It's the best, but that you still got to go back and fix uh, all that, you know, and, you know, because you're going to have, a, it's going to be typos or it's going to be inconsistent or a character is driving a different car in that scene that it drove before, or that character wouldn't make that choice in that scenario, or that dialogue doesn't ring true. And why do you keep saying the character's name to each other in dialogue? That's so hack, that kind of stuff. Thanks so much to Seamus Heffernan for joining me on this month's Thereby. The book is Napalm Hearts. Seamus, before you go, what can you tell listeners about the book? Napalm Hearts is the story of Thaddeus Grail. He is an American private investigator uh, working uh, working in London, England. Uh, Mr. Grail specializes in infidelity cases, matters of wayward hearts. And he is, uh, you know, he's successful, but he's bored and he's certainly jaded. Uh, he's contacted by a rich and powerful member of the British upper society who needs him to find his much younger and hard partying uh, trophy wife who has gone missing and may be in serious danger. And uh, for Grail, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a case that he's never worked before, and he, that's why he takes it. But also, I think he's trying to prove something to himself. Excellent. And if you're curious about Napalm Hearts or Seamus, why not visit his website at SeamusHeffernan.com. There'll be a link in our show notes, and Seamus spelled his own name for you at the beginning of the program. I'm not going to do it again, and it's not because I'm not looking at it directly in front of me and thus can't remember it. No, I'm doing it because I'm trying to make you, the listener, smarter, tougher, and more resilient. I'm the original Mama Bird. Does that make sense? No. Excellent. We're almost done this month's Thereby, but one question remains. Who's our next buy on their time? Hello, my name is Michaela Dyke. Michaela Dyke. She's an actor who wears so many hats. So when you when you first moved up, I mean, you had uh, a goal of like working and, and working in film, I, I, I think primarily uh, in terms of acting, but you also write and you also edit. So you have mm-hmm. like, you're, it's, it's safe to say, Michaela Dyke, <laughs> that you are a, a, a an actor a writer and a provocateur. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if that's the way I would phrase it. <laughs> and she's going to tell us about the realities of being a working actor and staging her first touring one-woman show, Dying Hard. That's next month on Thereby. This episode's disintegrated and become an ant's nest. You've got 30 seconds to remove your headphones before the ants get in your ears. Goodbye! <laughs> And Thereby Hangs a Tale is a production of Megaphonic FM. Megaphonic FM, we make podcasts and podcasts of the friends who live in your ears.